for you. We always love to know who's with us, and we love to connect with you, and that's one of the best ways we can connect with you. So I do hope you'll uh, offer us that opportunity. So we begin this new worship series today called See What God Sees. And seeing what God sees is often hard. We know what we're supposed to do, but it's often hard to realize. And so uh, I wanted to kind of start off the whole series with a story by a guy named Fred Craddock. Now, I imagine most of us in this room have never heard of this guy. Though I will say to you that he's a phenomenal, or was a phenomenal preaching professor. He worked at uh, Candler School of Theology at, at, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And you know how sometimes you say people who, they're the experts and they've written the book on the topic. Well, uh, Fred Craddock wrote the book on preaching, right? And so he knew what he was doing. Uh, he was a phenomenal preacher. I never had the opportunity for him to uh, teach me. That might be real obvious, by the way, I preach, I don't know. But um, anyway, just know that I, I've heard him talk many times and he tells a phenomenal story. He's told it multiple times over the years. Um, and that story really is quite profound. It starts really simple because it's about a church that he actually served early in his life. Uh, long before he got married, he, he was from Tennessee and he talks about this church that he served decades ago, probably in the early 70s. And he talks about how it was a devastating occurrence for him what happened because he talks about how this church lost its way, how this church kind of lost sight of what their mission was, what their purpose was. And he wanted his wife to go see the church because he actually loved his time there. He had a great ministry there early on in life. And, and he wanted to take her there. And so while they were living in Georgia and he was teaching at, at, at Candler School of Theology, they took a trip up to eastern Tennessee. That's where he's from. And, and up in the foothills of Tennessee on the eastern side of the state was where this church was. And he said as they were driving into town, Nettie was her name. He wanted Nettie to experience this church. He said, I just, I couldn't help but reminisce about an experience that I had. They're driving into town, right? And as he shares with her, he talks about how uh, an occurrence happened that, that uh, just helped him to see why this church had a struggle. And so he said, Nettie, here's what I remember. What I remember is there was some excitement in the community because at that time, uh, the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Now, I'd never heard of this place before, but some of you may have. The Oak Ridge National Laboratory does some work with the Department of Energy, and they have quite a good reputation. And anyway, they were expanding in the early 70s, and so there were new families coming in, right? And as the young pastor at that church, he was all excited. Golly, we can meet new people and we can invite folks to church. And so he started encouraging his church members to go invite folks to church, meet their neighbors, and welcome them into this little church that he thought was wonderful. And he said, one of the first responses that I got was, they won't fit in here, preacher. And, and he said, I was devastated. I couldn't believe they would even think something like that. I, why would you not want to go meet your neighbors and invite them to church? And we got a great thing going here. And he said, Nettie, I just couldn't believe it. And in fact, one week from the point at which somebody said to me, they won't fit in here, preacher, there was a church meeting. And at that old church meeting, there was a motion. And that motion was simply, I move that anybody who ever joins this church moving forward must own property in the county. Not only did the motion get seconded, it got approved. And he just said, my heart was devastated. And as he shared that with his wife while they're driving in town, they just so happened to find the church finally, he said. As we drove up, I, I just was amazed. He said, man, there was energy all around the, the building. And he said, in fact, there was more energy and more excitement going on than I ever remember happening when I was serving that church. He said, Nettie, I can't believe it. And so they pulled up and they got out of the car and they said, what we noticed was um, there was a big sign out on, the, uh, out on the building and it said barbecue. 
all you can eat. And they were devastated because the church had become a restaurant. It was no longer a church. And they, they, they got out of their car, they went inside, and they said, I, I was shocked by what I saw. They said, I saw the, the, the pews were all pushed up against one wall. And they said, that little ham and organ that that woman used to play was shoved into a corner. Said there were all kinds of people. I mean, lots of different people were there. There were people eating pork and ribs and chicken. And man, there were people all around. It was packed to the gills, he said. He said there were people everywhere and, and there were motorcycles in the parking lot. There were trucks. There were cars. There were people from all over. I mean, just people everywhere. He said there were, it was as if there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers from Mesopotamia. It was like Pentecost, he said. And then he said to Nettie, quite sarcastically, you know, it's a good thing this isn't a church anymore because those people wouldn't be welcome. Hello. It's a good thing this isn't a church anymore because those people, those people who are different, those people who look different, who act different, who have different values, who got different ink on their skin, got different clothes that they're wearing, they wouldn't be welcome here if this were still a church. You see, that story has great value for all of us. I happen to personally have experienced that very essence of a church. I, some of you know Kay and I went to England, lived there for a year in the early 90s, and I served at what's called a seven-point charge. There were seven Methodist churches. That's how big they were. <laughs> the largest church had 100 members. There were four churches that had 20 members. There were two churches that had five members each. One of them had been around since 1858, and guess what? We closed that church down that year because they lost sight of their vision. They lost sight of what it meant to look at and reach new people, what it meant to see people for who they were. And that's why Fred Craddock would tell that story because he said, man, any church that loses sight of its vision any church that loses sight of what it is they're called to do, they're going to have trouble. And sure enough, that's what happened. And it begs the question then, friends, why is it that some churches make it and some don't? Why is it some churches thrive and some don't? Why is it that some people are reached and some are not? And it's why we really wanted to offer this worship series over these next several weeks because, of course, our goal is to not lose sight of God's vision and in particular not to lose sight of seeing people the way God sees people. Because I'm here to tell you, friends, what I believe about God and the way God sees people is that God sees beauty in every person. That God sees worth and value in every person. That God sees the very imprint of God's nature and being in every person. You see, so whether you're sitting here in this room or not, or whether you're uh, in a church or not, or whether you live in this state or not, or whether you live in this country or not, or whether you live on this continent or not, God created every human being, and God has an imprint on every single human being's life. And when we discover that we can see people the way God sees people, man, there's virtually no stopping us. Because God's desire from the very beginning of creation, from the very beginning of laying everything out, was that we see people the way God sees people.
Listen, in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, there are two different creation accounts. Ooh, hello. Thanks so much. There's two creation accounts, one in Genesis 1 and one in Genesis 2, and they're very different kind of stories, but they both tell the same thing. God created all things, and God called them good, and God wanted a relationship with all of the creation. The first count is very ordered, right? Every time God spoke, things came into being, right? Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be uh, earth, and there was earth. Let there be uh, water, and there was water. Let there be stars and moon and sun, and there was, right? And every time God spoke, it was. And at the very end of chapter one, God gets to the best stuff. It's you, me, and all of us. And in part, this is what it says, beginning in verse 26. God spoke, so there's God talking again. God spoke, let us make human beings in our image. Make them reflecting our nature so they can be responsible for the fish of the sea and the birds in the air and the cattle and, yes, the earth itself and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. God created human beings. God created them godlike, reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female. I don't know about you, but when I read that passage, it, it always calls me back to who we are as a people, just all of creation, all of what God put into order, all of what God laid out, the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and the sky and all of that stuff and the animals and you and me, right? That God created all of it. And God, when God created us, human beings, God said something phenomenal. At the end of each of the previous five days, God said, it is good. But at the end of the sixth day, when God had created you and me, when God had created every face on the face of the earth, God said, it is very good. And God was serious. And God was intentional. And God wanted everybody to hear it and wanted everybody to know it. Now, all seven point, what is it, five billion people, everybody made in the image of God. And so we've got to ask the question then, well, so what does that image look like? I don't know about you, but I'm real grateful that God's not bald, blind, and fat. Right? That's not the image I got of God. The image that I've got of God is really quite different, and I'm just grateful. I don't know about you, but I'm just grateful God doesn't look like me. And if I were honest, I'm real grateful God doesn't look like you. That's just nothing personal. But God did make us in God's own image, and that image is really special. That image is profound. Now, for centuries after Jesus' birth and the church began, uh, for whatever reason, I guess because it was a common language, Latin was the language of the church for centuries. And so this image of God became known as imago dei. You may have heard that phrase before, imago dei. It's just Latin, means image of God. And there are many ways we can understand it, and perhaps you've got your own understanding of that, but I just want to kind of suggest there are a couple of ways that this image of God might be real. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we represent God. And that, that, that's two ways. That means we represent God, right, that, that we are God-like. That is to say that we have this image, we have this likeness, we are, we are a part of what God wanted, and we've got this something that's been imprinted on who we are. We represent God. Now, that's kind of challenging, isn't it? <laughs> you represent God. You represent who God is every single day, whether you want to or not, whether you like it or not, you represent God, and that's important because not only do you do that, 
But every other human being on the planet does that. God created all human beings. Another way to talk about it is uh, quite literally, we're, we're sort of in the spirit and likeness of God. God's spirit is within us. The very breath of God, we're told, right there in Genesis chapter 1, God breathed and it became, right? Genesis 2, when God breathed on the dirt, we became a living being and we stood up and we became upright and we became the image of God in the spirit and likeness of God. I suppose another way to talk about it is we are a graphic reflection of God that people ought to be able to see in us the human part of us, that, that we represent God, that we reflect what God is and what God does, right? And man, there's a part of that that's like overwhelming, right? I, I can't represent God. I can't reflect God. And yet that was God's purpose. God's purpose was to imprint on us the very possibility that others would see in us the image of God. And that, my friends, is good news. But it's good news not just for us, it's good news for all the world because every human being, male and female, every human being was made in the image of God. What's even more profound about this is, uh, you know, back in the day <laughs> when these guys are writing this book called the Bible, there were other cultures who had other gods. You probably know that, right? The Mesopotamian culture, the Babylonian culture. And in those cultures, the king of the day, the person who would rule, they would do funky things like they would say of themselves, not only am I Lord, ruler, but man, I am the image of God. And you better worship me, your ruler, as the image of God. <laughs> and God wanted to dispel all of that nonsense by saying that every human being is the image of God. Everyone. You see, every human being was made in the image of God. And God wanted this amazing relationship with this creation. God, God seemingly, according to Genesis chapter 1, wanted this amazing relationship with us, these human beings. That relationship was such that we would be the only ones God said is very good. We're, we would be the only ones that God could have a, a communal relationship with. We would be the only ones that God entrusted to sort of rule over and have dominion over all of the fish of the sea and all of the birds of the air and all of the cattle, right? Right? And then you begin to wonder, wow, <laughs> that's a lot of stuff to do. And it makes us sometimes wonder, what does that ruling look like? And king David, the greatest king of the Israelite nation, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. And one of the Psalms he wrote was Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, a part of what he says is this, and I love it. He just says, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? He's, he's having a conversation with God. What are human beings that you would be mindful of them, mortals that you would care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet. And I wonder if that's not that part in Genesis 1 where it says in some translations, you, we human beings that are all created in the image of God, we will have dominion over. Some translations say we will rule over. Some translations say we will subdue all of the animals, right? But the, the version I read from the message, Eugene Peterson, it says we, will have, uh, we can be responsible for the fish and the birds. 
and the animals. And that sounds just a little different, doesn't it? I mean, to be responsible for is a little different than rule over, have dominion over. And it's a fascinating Hebrew word. I can't even speak the word because I don't know Hebrew very well. But the Hebrew word is not used very often. It's used here and only in two or three other places in all of the Old Testament. But the word has that its root that you're supposed to plow. Plow. Rule? Have dominion? What does that look like? Plow. And I reflected back again about 30 years when Kay and I were in England, we had the wonderful opportunity to travel Europe because you're already there, right? So golly, we got to travel there all the time. And one time we're on a bus trip and we're in the, we're in the uh, country of Belgium. And like five or six times we see guys in their fields and they've got those reins on with the plow and the two horses in front of them and they're pulling the plow and they're plowing the dirt. And I'm like, golly, if that had happened once, that'd be unique. But we saw it five or six, seven different times. And I thought, wow, this is like 1991. And by golly, I'm not that old, okay? 1991. It's like a common way to plow the fields in Belgium, I guess. I don't know. But what I thought was, this is what plow means? And a part of what you're looking at is, yeah, he's controlling that dirt. And he's in charge of that dirt, right? And he has control over that dirt. That's what you do when you plow. But you know what else I noticed? He was in it, <laughs> like almost knee-deep, literally, right? They were in it. They were a part of it, and they were cultivating it. They were taking care of it. It was like it was their baby. They had responsibility for it. You see, to have dominion and to rule over, to plow, it does mean you've got a bit of control, but it means that the control needs to be much like God's kingdom, which is service and being a part of and caring for. I guarantee you talk to any farmer who may still use that plowing method. <laughs> They're a part of the dirt. They are one with. And they have a relationship with it. And that's what we're called to, you see, when we're called to have this dominion. But the best part of this gift is that God calls us into relationship with God and all that God has done. And that every human being ever created on the face of this earth and there's been billions and billions and billions, right? Every one of them, every one of them was made in the image of God. And until and unless we as people of faith believe that that's true, we can't be faithful even to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ believes that Jesus was with God in the beginning when all of that creation took place and was a part of the way in which that creation took place so that we recognize that every human is made in the image of God. What that means for you and me is that no matter who uh, this person is or how this person is, that being an image bearer of God, they deserve respect and honor even when they're people of different faith, even when they're people who value really weird stuff, even when they do mean and spiteful things, even when I disagree with who they are as a person, they are made in the image of God. And I got to figure a way, even when I don't appreciate, I don't approve of, I don't like, how can I give honor and respect to the image bearer of God. It's a challenge, but it's our challenge. It's who we are. 
Now, you may know, of course, that if you read further into Genesis chapter 2 and we get into the account of Adam and Eve, uh, you may remember that, you know, uh, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of the difference between good and evil, and sin enters the world. And some of us consider that to mean that the image of God was destroyed. I don't believe that. I believe the image of God may be marred, may, may be wounded, may not be as perfect as it could be, but if we were made in the image of God and we have sin, right? We all have sin, chief among them. Sorry to let you know. <laughs> we're marred. We're wounded. And the good news for those of us who profess faith in Jesus is he offers a way to help that marring become healed, that woundedness to become whole to become more like the image of God that God intended from the very beginning. The Apostle Paul would write about this when he, when he writes to the church at Colossae. He puts it this way in the very first chapter. He says, he, meaning Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. There's that, that whole ruling thing, that dominion thing, right? All things have been created through him and for him. And so the gift for us as followers of Jesus is, man, we can make that image become whole again. We can receive his forgiveness and we can help recreate what it is God intended from the very beginning. That every person is made in the image of God, deserving of respect and honor, no matter who they are. Because God wanted a relationship with those of us who are the created. And let's be honest, every once in a while we kind of think we're the creator. I got this figured out. I know what I'm doing. I know how this works. I'm good. But we're only the created. We are the dirt that is nothing without the breath of God and the ways in which that breath gives us meaning and purpose and value. But you see, Jesus helps us to claim that, not only for ourselves, but for the world. And what Jesus further does that the Apostle Paul would write about is he gives us a reimagining or a re-imaging of this vision. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, he would say, now clothe yourselves with the new person created according to God's image, full of justice and true holiness. And I think that justice and true holiness is about honoring and respecting even the images of God and those people that are different from us. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia. We don't use those words anymore, do we? We use things like Muslim and Jew, people who are tatted up, people who believe in things that we don't believe in people who act in ways that we don't approve of, people whose livelihoods are not what we think are well. We use all kinds of nomers. But you see what God said in the very beginning and for the purposes of all of creation, all people are made in the image of God. And what a different place this world would be if we began to see what God sees. No longer would that Oak Ridge Church be a restaurant. 
No longer would there be as much hatred and vitriol and mean-spiritedness and vindictiveness as we witness. But because I see in somebody that I may not approve of or appreciate or like the image of God, I treat them with respect and honor and integrity because that's my purpose as a follower of Jesus so that others may eventually know what he can do in even my heart because it takes all of Jesus' mercy and forgiveness and grace and justice for me to see the image of God in somebody. So I can only assume it takes all of us a lot of God's mercy and a lot of God's grace to see the image of God in other people. Friends, this whole rest of this month, we're going to try to see the way God sees. Because then, God's kingdom is built. God is glorified. And God's original design and God's original desire is reclaimed. Thanks be to God that that is genuinely possible. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, thank you that you offer us the gift of your image. You've imprinted it on our hearts and our lives. You call us to be your reflection, to represent who you are. God, help us in all of our humanity to see what you see in other people, to see your image, to see your imprint, to see your representation in even those that we despise. That as we do so, God, we might discover your original intent and desire to be in relationship with us and for us to be in holy and wonderful relationship with you and all of your creation. God, give us courage. Claim for us this truth and allow us to be your image bearers in the world. God, this is our prayer. And we lift it in the name of the one, Jesus, whom we know to be the Christ. Amen.